Well, right now, at this very moment, tens of thousands of people are running the Detroit Free Press Marathon. Don't you feel a little guilty for just sitting all morning? Uh, me neither. Uh, not one little bit. Uh, we have a lot of ward people running in today's marathon, and I, I got up early and met our team at the start line. Uh, let's uh, watch this. Well, it's early Sunday morning, and uh, the sun has not yet risen, but people are coming from all over into the city of Detroit for the, uh, the annual Detroit Free Press Marathon. More than 200 runners are running as part of Team World Vision, and they are running to raise uh, money for fresh, clean drinking water in Africa. And a lot of the runners are regular attendees and members of Ward Church, so they stand behind me. Yeah. Loretta, come on, come on. Like, like Loretta, uh, why, uh, why has this cause of fresh drinking water captured your heart and the heart of everybody here? Yeah, it has captured my heart just because um, we can just turn on a faucet and get access to clean drinking water. But in Africa, many of the girls can't go to school. They actually have to walk six kilometers every day to go and get dirty water that's full of parasites and it really causes a huge infant mortality rate in the children and a lot of them die and so we're doing this so that we can change a whole uh, village around and this is something we take for granted yes. where we live but it's a problem yes. worldwide uh alan you're a runner come uh and and why uh why a marathon why, why couldn't we do this like with a pancake breakfast or something more aligned with my my hobbies <laughs> why why running when you're running you you have a chance to talk to people you find out people's life stories um and share a common desire to help people that can't help themselves we can do something about this and the running side of it also helps us keep fit rather than sitting behind a desk which i do most of the week all of Ward Church is checking in on you right now and praying for you and cheering you on as you run today. Uh, thank you for your efforts. And uh, would, would you read for us, Bev, the, the scripture reading of the day, uh, Knox Hall Sanctuary. And if you're watching at home, would you, would you stand up uh, as well if you can do so in a safe place as we listen to uh, one sentence, one profound sentence uh, recorded from the teachings of Jesus. So today's reading is from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the teaching of Jesus for us and for our world. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, uh, we, we pray that you would teach us what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We pray for all of the runners uh, today that you would grant each runner safety and provision and strength and endurance and joy. And so uh, we pray your blessing now and your anointing on Pastor Soonpak as he brings this morning's message. Uh, would you open it uh, for our use and for our joy? May we receive it with joy, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And if I heard correctly, uh, I believe next year we are going to have a pancake breakfast marathon. Uh, <laughs> led by Senior Pastor Scott McKee. So we will do that next year. No, our Beatitudes series we've been in for the past few weeks has been great about forming us through the very words of Jesus Christ on how we are the people of God in a broken world. And then we get to this Beatitude today, and I think it's the first and only Beatitude that really addresses uh, motive rather than condition. 
Jesus, Jesus has been talking to the poor, the marginalized, the mourners, and the meek. But here he doesn't talk about righteous people. He talks, he talks about people who would hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is the desire that Jesus emphasizes, uh, which we'll unpack this morning. But for that first word, righteousness, uh, it's a word we don't really use in our everyday language. It's not a word that we throw around in our conversations. But if you've been around church enough, we know, uh, we're familiar with the word. We've heard that word righteousness. Uh, it's a word we hear uh, here and we hear it in our Bible studies. Uh, it's a word that uh, we're familiar with. And if you're not from the church background, uh, if you're visiting or coming new to Ward or uh, maybe don't have a, a longer history in the church, it may be a word that you heard about but maybe not have experienced personally or even know about this word called righteousness. Well, today we're going to talk about righteousness, righteousness as Scripture talks about it. And in the Scripture, it talks about righteousness as both a standing before God, but also a practice for the people of God. That righteousness is both a standing before God and a practice uh, for the people of God. In the Old Testament, there's this idea of standing before a holy God, that the people would stand before God and because of God's holiness, who he was, that he's without sin and the, ma- the vastness of his uh, righteousness would overwhelm and eventually destroy people if they stood in his presence. So how can we, the people of God, stand before this holy God? Well, in the New Testament, it, uh, Jesus talks about it is only through him and his righteousness that we stand before God. Then Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, the early church letter to the Roman church, says it this way in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this righteousness that we are justified to stand before a holy God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That we can stand before God because of the righteousness that's been given to us. And it's important to understand that the standing before God's not determined by who we are or what we've done, but by the opposite of it. No matter what we try to lift up, nothing can able, enable us to stand before a holy God only by the righteousness that God has given each and every one of us who has placed their faith in Jesus. This Christian doctrine is called uh, imputation. Imputation. And it's the idea that the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, this holy and perfect life that he lived, that he was without sin and did everything uh, of the will of the Father, this righteous life of Jesus is imputed to us, broken sinners, and that the righteousness of God is imputed into us. So when we stand before God, we can stand before God with boldness, not because of the works that we have done, but only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that God can stand before us, this holy God, and see the very works of Christ in us. And that work of Christ is imputed into every one of us. That standing before God is only possible through the righteousness of Jesus, imputed, given, uh, indwelled in us. And that can really never change the standing before God, the righteousness. But righteousness is something we can practice as well. Scripture talks about it as a, a practice, something we can do. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 21.3 says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. This pairing of righteousness and justice was 
very common through the scriptures, this idea of being the righteousness of God, righteousness of God and doing justice is something God says we can practice and lean into. In the New Testament, they repeat this practice of righteousness. 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. 2 Timothy 2.22, the apostle says to pursue righteousness. It's something we should pursue after, endeavor after. And this idea that we can practice the righteousness that's already indwelled in us as a standing, a standing before God and our practice. I find myself having, being a parent, a father of young children, that sometimes I'll say things that my parents said to me when I was growing up. Uh, the common phrase is, hey, uh, that's not something we do. You know, that's just not what we do. And I find myself telling my kids that because my parents told that to me. And it was this idea that, well, there's something in my identity as a part of this family and how we behave and what we do. And that because of that, that's how we don't behave a certain way in the context of other people. It's the idea that, well, just because they behave a certain way doesn't mean they're outside the family, but it does mean because you are part of this family, because you are part of my family, that we do act a certain way. Now, when we talk about practicing righteousness in the same light, that they, you are a person of God and you act and you live your life in a certain way. And when we talk about practicing righteousness, it becomes really important how we measure righteousness. Because that will really determine the way we look at ourselves and other people. You see, how we measure righteousness will determine the way you live your life and how you treat others. So how we measure this righteous life, the righteousness that we practice, it will determine the way you look at yourself, the way you live your life, and the way you treat other people. And we're going to unpack that question. What does it mean? How do we measure a righteous Life, But the first two questions I want to tackle is this. One, how do we increase our appetite for righteousness? First question, how do we increase our appetite for righteousness? Two, what are the ethical implications of living a life uh, towards righteousness? And finally, that last question, the weighty question of how do we measure a righteous life? First, how do we increase our appetite for righteousness? Jesus speaks to the crowd on this mountainside uh, full of hungry and thirsty people, really unlike anything we personally probably experience in the Western world, that they experience this hunger and thirst. And there's this passionate appeal uh, to God that we find through Scripture of this hunger and thirst. And we find it real clearly in Psalm 63 by King David, the central figure in Scripture, hundreds of years before Jesus. King David uh, read this, wrote this uh, psalm in the deserts of Judah. He says this, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek after you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And King David is writing this in the middle of a desert, in a dry and parched land, in a place where it's really difficult to find water, where water is the lifeline of society, the lifeline of a person. And in this dry and parched land where all he can be thinking about from a human perspective it's probably just a glass of water says, even there, his thirst is for God, that he longs after God. It's almost he's saying if in this desert, arid place where everything is dry, if a spring of water bursts forth, even then he would choose to long after God, 
that is hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness. It's this appeal, this passionate appeal to who God is. And I, I often think when I'm in those situations, when I find myself in those desert places, most of my attention turns to the desert around me. Woe is me. Or that next drink of water I can to help alleviate the situation I am in. Often I turn to things to fill that righteousness, fill the hunger and thirst in me that's not necessarily God and his righteousness. And I think that's for us as well. That we find ourselves that in that moment when we feel the storms of life come upon us, the storms of life start bearing upon us, that we don't want to turn to God. We want to turn to the things that make and fill us and satisfy us, whether that be more money, whether that be the next job promotion, whether that be the next status symbol, something that would make us more comfortable, whether that's another person or a dose or whatever it may be, we turn to the things that we know will temporarily fill us because not really willing to sit down and have that conversation with God about how do I meet my hunger and thirst with you and you alone. There's this great line from the, uh, a novel in 1945 called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. Father Smith is a priest who's come a uh, serving in this small little village. And in this village, uh, they have no idea of God and they're all pursuing the worldly pleasures. And Father Smith is trying to bring the gospel to this village. And he shares this line that resonates with us, I believe, today. He says, every man who rings the bell at the brothel door, a bra- at a brothel, is unconsciously looking for God. That every man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. That at our deepest desire, we're all looking for purpose and to be filled. And friends, I ask today, what brothel door is knocked, are you knocking at? What are the hunger and thirst in your soul? What are the things in your heart that you long for? What are the things that you're searching meaning and purpose to be satisfied and satisfied to the whole? And are you willing to deny the temporary uh, pleasures of this world? The pleasures of power, fame, beauty, and pleasure for the eternal righteousness only God can give. The only way we can increase our appetite for his righteousness is to deny ourselves the brothel doors in our souls. And listen to what Jesus says. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. And the word he uses is not just a common, they will be filled as though you're filling something up uh, just a little bit. But it's actually a farming term where they would uh, overfeed, overgorge uh, the animals in, uh, that they would tend to. It's this idea of overwhelmingly, ab- abundantly, overflowingly filling them up. And that's what God promises us. For you shall be satisfied by God himself. God's overwhelming, captivating, unquenchable love is on the other side. That when we turn from the things that destroy us, and hunger and thirst for his righteousness, God promises his love, acceptance, and mercy. Henry Nouwen, a great author, theologian, pastor, uh, and uh, wrote this concerning kind of this topic. It says, I cannot continually say no to this or that or no to that unless there is something ten times more attractive to choose. Saying no to my lust, my greeds, my needs, and the world's power takes an enormous amount of energy. The only hope is to find something so obviously real and attractive that I can devote all my energies to saying yes. One such thing I can say yes to is when I come in touch with the fact that I am loved. Once I have found that in my total brokenness, I am still loved, 
I become free from the compulsion of doing successful things. And what now one is saying is when you come to the place of feeling that love and acceptance and satisfaction and feeling by God himself, all the other things fade away and then I can become someone whose appetite is only quenched by the righteousness of God. Our appetite increases for righteousness when we find our one such thing in God and him alone. I don't know how long you've been searching, but I hope you leave with that, that one line that our appetite can only be satisfied by God and him alone. All the other things will fade away, whatever addiction, whatever trappings, whatever things that may hold you down. Remember, it is him and him alone will satisfy your deepest longing. So then, what are our imp- uh, ethical implications to that? What is it when we practice and live and stand before the righteousness of God? What are the ethical implications to that? How do I live my life? The prophet Isaiah 51 says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. Look to the rock from where you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instructions will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness, righteousness draws near speedily, and my salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nation. The, prophets, the prophet here speaks to a God who would pursue righteousness. That Isaiah is writing to the people who would pursue righteousness, and they want to remind them who you were created in the image of. Where did you come from? The standing before God. Who are you? The people of God. And then the practice says this is what it means. That righteousness, salvation, and justice, all terms that are spoken in conjunction with each other throughout Scripture. It says these are the things that will go forth when you follow after him. See, the, the Israelite nation at the time in history was a unique nation because God was their Lord. And their purpose was that they were supposed to be a blessing and intercede for the surrounding nations around them. That all the surrounding nations around them had injustices and brokenness, and they followed after pagan gods, and God purposed the Israelites to be a blessing and be a mediator on behalf of all those around them. That they were called to be a kingdom of priests, that they would intercede for them and bring that righteousness. They would bring that justice. They would bring salvation uh, by their presence and their actions. In the same way God called the Israelites and their kingdom in the New Testament, Jesus says that it's not a specific nation, but the church. The men and women in this room, the young and old throughout the world, that the church would live out that same calling to bring righteousness to the world, that very same calling. And Jesus says in uh, John 8, 12, and 9, 5, that he's the light of the world, that the world is consumed by darkness, but Jesus himself is bringing that light to the nations, the light to all the parts of So what are the ethical implications to that? How does that apply to how I should live my life? It's this, to pursue righteousness, to practice righteousness means that we bring God's justice, that we bring God's salvation to the cries of this world. Our pursuit of righteousness is not just between you and God. It's not just about what we do in this room. But it's about how we respond to the cries of the world. See, when you hear and respond to the cries of people who experience injustice, loss, and hopelessness, we practice righteousness. That's the righteousness that God calls us to live out our lives for. 
that when we hear and respond to the cries of injustice, loss, and hopelessness in our world, we are practicing the very righteousness of God. In this world, there's a way that God intended and the way, and the, way the world is. And the gap are us, the people of God who intercede on behalf, that when we hear the cries that we respond that's why we have men and women running this morning. It's not because they're just going for exercise. It's that they heard the cries of children in Africa say that we don't have clean water. And we're dying from common things because we don't have clean water. And we have men and women that heard that cry and said, I need to respond. There's something I have to do. That's how I need to practice righteousness. We're not filling a calendar by saying, hey, we want to collect backpacks and coats and blankets and toys and Christmas boxes. It's because we heard the cries of our city and the cries of our world and said, how can we not, how can we remain silent? How can we respond? How can we hear the things in our world and how can we respond to it? We send missionaries and we send short-term teens to dark parts of this world where the worst thing that can happen for some of our missionaries to be kicked out of the country is because we hear the spiritual cries. We have a great team that went to Thailand last year because what they heard were the cries of the city, cries of these women that are being trafficked and said, we can't remain on the sidelines anymore. We want to respond. I got to sit with them yesterday as they were sharing stories of the brokenness of some of the women that they interact with and how can we not respond as a church and they're actually making plans even now to go on a trip next year and we would love the church to get involved if that's stirring in your heart saying how do we not respond to those things they're even meeting right after this service uh, right after the service to talk about ways we can respond in, in the ways that God has called this church uh, I encourage you to step out that when we hear cries we get to participate with God and bringing about the righteousness uh, to the people who desperately need it. It is a righteous act when we respond. It is a righteous act when we hear the cries of injustice and we step in and bring his redemption. But the flip side is this, that it's also an unrighteous act. It's also an unrighteous act when we ignore those cries. Church, it's an unrighteous act. The New Testament writer James says this, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Church, I, I, I would challenge us, for some of us, maybe we've turned a deaf ear to the cries of this world. We've put our heads down and we've pursued comfort over purpose. And what God is calling to, if we want to be righteous people, if we want to be the righteousness of God in our world, we need to examine the ways we need to hear the cries of our world in our own neighborhoods, but in the world as well. Parts of the world where they're shouting for justice, shouting for hope. Church, how do we respond to that? That is our calling to practice righteousness is to step in, no longer ignoring, but stepping in. And finally, how do we measure this righteous life? How do we measure 
a righteous life. If this is the life we're called to, how do we measure a righteous life? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And as he said those words, I wonder if the people really understood the impact of those words. Because the human condition is wired to go completely opposite of that beatitude. As we discussed earlier, that hunger and thirst, that we often hunger and thirst for unrighteous things are actually never filled or even filled temporarily. And it's really a bigger problem just than you and I on an individual basis. It's actually a macro level human condition issue. The Apostle Paul in the Romans 3 says, there's no one righteous, no, not even one. That none of us is righteous, no, not even one. And all all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we have all fallen short. No matter what we try to lift up to God, they all fall short. That the standard MO in our hearts and our condition, our very nature is that we push back against righteous things and embrace unrighteous things. So what changes in us? What makes us want to be here? What makes us want to respond in a way that God calls us to? And the scripture says it this way, and I think the, one of the most beautiful summations of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that God made him... Jesus, God made Jesus, who had no sin, sin for us, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. That the old has passed away, so that in Jesus, who lived a sinless life, became sin for us. Earlier we talked about the doctrine of imputation, uh, imputation, but it's actually a double imputation. As Christ's righteousness is given to me, my very sinfulness, my very sinfulness, the very ways I've ignored the cause, the ways that I've broken the heart of God, the ways that I've fallen short, all the ways of my sinfulness is actually imputed to Christ. The bearing of sin is imputed to a sinless man, the most unfair thing in all of creation, and he takes it. And he pays the penalty for it on the cross. So how do we measure a righteous life? We always want a list of things that we should do and shouldn't do. But it's this, it's only in the person of Jesus Christ that we measure righteousness. It's only in Jesus and him alone do we measure righteousness. Never on a list. It's only be found in the face of our Savior. See, we measure our righteousness only in walking with Jesus, to live and love like he did, the very mission of our church. See, when we're willing to sacrifice our own reputation to sit with sinners, when we're willing to forsake our religious duties and only to dwell longer with our Savior, when we're willing to lay all things down for the sake of knowing him, that's when we know our lives are measured up to his righteousness. When Jesus becomes the measurement for our own formation, we become more and more like him. And it's surprising when we become more and more like him, we start living and loving like he does. We no longer look at the world, the outside world, with condemnation and judgment, but with love and grace and invitational truth. I want to close uh, by just giving a warning uh, from this passage, because sometimes we can leave with it with even a wrong attitude in of itself because of another kind of righteousness that we haven't talked about so far, that when our eyes start gravitating away from Jesus, 
we start focusing on another form of righteousness called self-righteousness. A plague that's been in our churches since the very beginning. Even Jesus, as he preached on this mountainside, was surrounded by people that were hungry and thirsty for truth. Hungry and thirsty for the gospel. But there were also others around them. These religious leaders that had devoted themselves to the scriptures. That had read the scriptures, poured over them. That spent all their lives living a life what they thought was righteous. They had formed a list of rules, formed a list of ways they thought this is what it means to be righteous. And on that, they focused on what they had wrote down and they forgot that the Savior of the world, the great God of creation, was in their midst speaking to them about what it meant to be righteous in his world. They missed Jesus. These people that devoted themselves to Scripture had missed Jesus in their midst. And I would say, church, we are in danger of the same kind of self-righteousness. Sometimes our churches are filled with declare how righteous they are because all the things they do and all the things they don't, other people, other thing, the things they don't do compared to other people. And they shout at the world, just be a little bit more like us. If they could just more like us, think like us, then the world would be a better place. It's a common technique that the enemy uses to divide the church from its mission. 17th century uh, Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Remedies... Uh, precious remedies against Satan's devices. And he talks about how the enemy has these certain tricks he uses over and over again uh, to disrupt the life of a believer, the church, and its calling. And one of the main ways the enemy uses, he describes, uh, to really thwart believers to living out the way God intended it is feeding into their self-righteousness. That's one of the best ways to make a Christian useless. Self-righteousness. And the way he prescribes a remedy, this Puritan pastor many years ago, he says, this is the remedy to make sure uh, we live our lives the way God intended us. Don't ever, don't ever lift up your good works to replace Christ on his throne. Reject all the doctrines. Hate everything that would say otherwise. Anything that would say that tempts us to removing Jesus as the very source of our righteousness, that he, him alone, deserves to be on the throne. Keep our eyes upon him, nothing else. Anytime our temptation uh, goes toward lifting up the things that we do, remind yourself it's only him and him alone that is our righteousness, the very source and the very guide and very means that we practice righteousness in our world. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and the grace that you give us. Lord, it is in you and you alone uh, that we find our standing. Father, we are humbled that you would call us broken vessels to be the instruments and means of your righteousness, Lord. A righteousness that makes us, allows us to stand and be called a son or daughter of you, but also the means in which we can live out our lives in a way that fulfills your calling, to be a light in a dark world. Father, to be a precious water, an eternal uh, spring of water to a dry and Uh, parched land. God, we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.